Section 48 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 15. The Bitterness of Ecstasy. Part 3. A glow came into his face, into his fine, smooth skin, his eyes gold-gray, glowed intimately to her. He burned up. He caught fire and became splendid, royal, something like a tiger. She caught his brilliant, burnished glamour. Her heart and her soul were shut away, fast down below, hidden. She was free of them. She was to have her satisfaction. She became proud and erect, like a flower, putting itself forth in its proper strength. His warmth invigorated her. His beauty of form, which seemed to glow out in contrast with the rest of people, made her proud. It was like deference to her, and made her feel as if she represented before him all the grace and flower of humanity. She was no mere Ursula Brangwen. She was woman. She was the whole of woman in the human order, all-containing, universal. How should she be limited to individuality? She was exhilarated. She did not want to go away from him. She had her place by him. Who should take her away? They came out of the cafe. Is there anything you would like to do? He said. Is there anything we can do? It was a dark, windy night in March. There is nothing to do, she said, which was the answer he wanted. Let us walk, then. Where shall we walk? he asked. Shall we go to the river? she suggested timidly. In a moment, they were on the tram, going down to Trent Bridge. She was so glad. The thought of walking in the dark, far-reaching water meadows, beside the full river, transported her. Dark water flowing in silence through the big, restless night made her feel wild. They crossed the bridge, descended, and went away from the lights. In an instant, in the darkness, he took her hand, and they went in silence, with subtle feet treading the darkness. The town fumed away on their left. There were strange lights and sounds, the wind rushed against the trees and under the bridge. They walked close together, powerful in unison. He drew her very close, held her with a subtle, stealthy, powerful passion, as if they had a secret agreement which held good in the profound darkness. The profound darkness was their universe. It is like it was before, she said. Yet it was not in the least as it was before. Nevertheless, his heart was perfectly in accord with her. They thought one thought. I knew I should come back, he said at length. She quivered. Did you always love me? she asked. The directness of the question overcame him, submerged him for a moment. The darkness traveled massively along. I had to come back to you, he said, 
as if hypnotized. You were always at the back of everything. She was silent with triumph, like fate. I loved you, she said, always. The dark flame leaped up in him. He must give her himself. He must give her the very foundations of himself. He drew her very close, and they went on in silence. She started violently, hearing voices. They were near a stile across the dark meadows. It's only lovers, he said to her softly. She looked to see the dark figures against the fence, wondering that the darkness was inhabited. Only lovers will walk here tonight, he said. Then, in a low, vibrating voice, he told her about Africa, the strange darkness, the strange blood fear. I am not afraid of the darkness in England, he said. It is soft and natural to me. It is my medium, especially when you are here. But in Africa, it seems massive and fluid with terror. Not fear of anything, just fear. One breathes it, like the smell of blood. The blacks know it. They worship it, really, the darkness. One almost likes it, the fear, something sensual. She thrilled again to him. He was to her a voice out of the darkness. He talked to her all the while, in low tones, about Africa, conveying something strange and sensual to her. The negro with his loose, soft passion that she could envelop one like a bath. Gradually, he transferred to her the hot, fecund darkness that possessed his own blood. He was strangely secret. The whole world must be abolished. He maddened her with his soft, cajoling, vibrating tones. He wanted her to answer, to understand. A turgid, teeming night, heavy with fecundity in which every molecule of matter grew big with increase, secretly urgent with fecund desire, seemed to come to pass. She quivered, taut and vibrating, almost pained. And gradually he ceased telling her of Africa. There came a silence, whilst they walked the darkness beside the massive river. Her limbs were rich and tense. She felt they must be vibrating with a low, profound vibration. She could scarcely walk. The deep vibration of the darkness could only be felt, not heard. Suddenly, as they walked, she turned to him and held him fast, as if she were turned to steel. Do you love me? she cried in anguish. Yes, he said in a curious lapping voice unlike himself. Yes, I love you. He seemed like the living darkness upon her. She was in the embrace of the strong darkness. He held her enclosed, soft, unutterably soft, and with the unrelaxing softness of fate, the relentless softness of fecundity. She quivered, and quivered, like a tense thing that is struck. But he held her all the time, soft, unending, like darkness closed upon her, omnipresent as the night. He kissed her, and she quivered as if she were being destroyed, shattered. The lighted vessel vibrated and broke in her soul. The light fell, struggled, and went dark. She was all dark 
willless, having only the receptive will. He kissed her with his soft, enveloping kisses, and she responded to them completely, her mind, her soul gone out. Darkness cleaving to darkness, she hung close to him, pressed herself into the soft flow of his kiss, pressed herself down, down to the source and core of his kiss, herself covered and enveloped in the warm, fecund flow of his kiss that traveled over her, flowed over her, covered her, flowed over the last fiber of her, so that they were one stream, one dark fecundity, and she clung at the core of him, with her lips holding open the very bottommost source of him. So they stood in the utter dark kiss that triumphed over them both, subjected them, knitted them into one fecund nucleus of the fluid darkness. It was bliss. It was the nucleoating of the fecund darkness. Once the vessel had vibrated till it was shattered, the light of consciousness gone, then the darkness reigned and the unutterable satisfaction. They stood, enjoying the unmitigated kiss, taking it, giving to it endlessly, and still it was not exhausted. Their veins fluttered, their blood ran together as one stream. Till gradually a sleep, a heaviness settled on them, a drowse, and out of the drowse a small light of consciousness woke up. Ursula became aware of the night around her, the water lapping and running full just near, the trees roaring and sowing in gusts of wind. She kept near to him, in contact with him, but she became ever more and more herself, and she knew she must go to catch her train but she did not want to draw away from contact with him. At length they roused and set out. No longer they existed in the unblemished darkness. There was the glitter of a bridge, the twinkle of lights across the river, the big flare of the town in front and on their right. But still, dark and soft and incontestable, their bodies walked untouched by the lights, darkness supreme and arrogant. The stupid lights, Ursula said to herself in her dark, sensual arrogance. The stupid, artificial, exaggerated town, fuming its lights, it does not exist, really. It rests upon the unlimited darkness, like a gleam of colored oil on a dark water. But what is it? Nothing. Just nothing. In the tram, in the train, she felt the same. The lights... The civic uniform was a trick played. The people, as they moved or sat, were only dummies exposed. She could see, beneath their pale, wooden pretense of composure and civic purposefulness, the dark stream that contained them all. They were like little paper ships in their motion. But in reality, each one was a dark, blind, eager wave, urging blindly forward, dark with the same homogeneous desire and all their talk, and all their behavior was sham. They were dressed-up creatures. She was reminded of the invisible man, who was a piece of darkness made visible only by his clothes. During the next weeks, all the time she went about in the same dark richness, 
her eyes dilated and shining like the eyes of a wild animal, a curious half-smile which seemed to her jibing at the civic pretense of all the human life about her. "'What are you, you pale citizens?' her face seemed to say, gleaming. "'You subdued beast in sheep's clothing, you primeval darkness falsified to a social mechanism.' She went about in the sensual subconsciousness all the time, mocking at the ready-made artificial daylight of the rest. "'They assume selves as they assume suits of clothing,' she said to herself, looking in mocking contempt at the stiffened, neutralized men. They think it better to be clerks or professors than to be the dark, fertile beings that exist in the potential darkness. What do you think you are? Her soul asked of the professor as she sat opposite him in class. What do you think you are as you sit here in your gown and your spectacles? You are a lurking, blood-sniffing creature with eyes peering out of the jungle darkness, snuffing for your desires. That is what you are, though nobody would believe it, and you would be the very last to allow it. Her soul mocked at all this pretense. Herself, she kept on pretending. She dressed herself and made herself fine. She attended her lectures and scribbled her notes. But all in a mood of superficial mocking facility. She understood well enough their two and two make four tricks. She was as clever as they were. But care. Did she care about their monkey tricks of knowledge or learning or civic deportment? She did not care in the least. There was Skrebensky. There was her dark, vital self. Outside the college, the utter darkness, Skrebensky was waiting. On the edge of the night, he was attentive. Did he care? She was free as a leopard that sends up its raucous cry in the night. She had the potent, dark stream of her own blood. She had the glimmering core of fecundity. She had her mate, her complement, her sharer in fruition. So she had all, everything. Skrebinski was staying in Nottingham all the time. He, too, was free. He knew no one in this town. He had no civic self to maintain. He was free. Their trams and markets and theaters and public meetings were a shaken kaleidoscope to him. He watched as a lion or a tiger may lie with narrowed eyes watching the people pass before its cage. The kaleidoscopic unreality of people, or a leopard lie blinking, watching the incomprehensible feats of the keepers. He despised it all. It was all non-existent. Their good professors... They're good clergymen, they're good political speakers, they're good earnest women. All the time he felt his soul was grinning, grinning at the sight of them. So many performing puppets, all wood and rag for the performance. He watched the citizen, a pillar of society, a model, saw the stiff goat's legs, which have become almost stiffened to wood in the desire to make them puppet in their action. He saw the trousers formed to the puppet action. Man's legs. But man's legs become rigid and deformed, ugly, mechanical. He was curiously happy being alone now. The glimmering grin was on his face. 
he had no longer any necessity to take part in the performing tricks of the rest. He had discovered the clue to himself. He had escaped from the show, like a wild beast escaped straight back into its jungle. Having a room in a quiet hotel, he hired a horse and rode out into the country, staying sometimes for the night in some village, and returning the next day. He felt rich and abundant in himself. Everything he did was a voluptuous pleasure to him, either to ride on horseback, or to walk, or to lie in the sun, or to drink in a public house. He had no use for people, nor for words. He had an amused pleasure in everything, a great sense of voluptuous richness in himself, and of the fecundity of the universal night he inhabited. The puppet shapes of people, their wood mechanical voices, he was remote from them. For there were always his meetings with Ursula. Very often she did not go to college in the afternoon, but walked with him instead. Or he took a motor car or a dog cart, and they drove into the country, leaving the car and going away by themselves into the woods. He had not taken her yet. With subtle, instinctive economy, they went to the end of each kiss, each embrace, each pleasure in intimate contact, knowing subconsciously that the last was coming. It was to be their final entry into the source of creation. She took him home, and he stayed a week at Beldover with her family. She loved having him in the house. Strange how he seemed to come into the atmosphere of her family with his laughing, insidious grace. They all loved him. He was kin to them. His raillery, his warm, voluptuous, mocking presence was meat and joy to the Bronwyn household. For this house was always quivering with darkness. They put off their puppet form when they came home to lie and drowse in the sun. There was a sense of freedom amongst them all, of the undercurrent of darkness among them all. Yet here, at home, Ursula resented it. It became distasteful to her, and she knew that if they understood the real relationship between her and Skrebinski, her parents, her father in particular, would go mad with rage. So, subtly, she seemed to be like any other girl who is more or less courted by a man. And she was like any other girl. But in her, the antagonism to the social imposition was, for the time, complete and final. She waited, every moment of the day, for his next kiss. She admitted it to herself in shame and bliss. Almost consciously, she waited. He waited, but until the time came, more unconsciously. When the time came that he should kiss her again, a prevention was an annihilation to him. He felt his flesh go gray. He was heavy with a corpse-like inanition. He did not exist, if the time passed unfulfilled. He came to her finally in a superb consummation. It was very dark, and again a windy, heavy night. They had come down the lane towards Beldover, down to the valley. They were at the end of their kisses, and there was the silence between them. They stood as at the edge of a cliff, with a great darkness beneath. Coming out of the lane along the darkness, with the dark space spreading down to the wind, 
and the twinkling lights of the station below, the far-off windy chuff of a shunting train, the tiny clink, clink, clink of the wagons blown between the wind, the light of Beldover Edge twinkling upon the blackness of the hill opposite, the glow of the furnaces along the railway to the right, their steps began to falter. They would soon come out of the darkness into the lights. It was like turning back. It was unfulfillment. Two quivering, unwilling creatures, they lingered on the edge of the darkness, peering out at the lights and the machine glimmer beyond. They could not turn back to the world. They could not. So, lingering along, they came to a great oak tree by the path. In all its budding mass, it roared to the wind, and its trunk vibrated in every fiber, powerful, indomitable. We will sit down, he said. And in the roaring circle under the tree that was almost invisible, yet whose powerful presence received them, they lay a moment, looking at the twinkling lights on the darkness opposite, saw the sweeping brand of a train past the edge of their darkened field. Then he turned and kissed her, and she waited for him. The pain to her was the pain she wanted. The agony was the agony she wanted. She was caught up, entangled in the powerful vibration of the night. The man, what was he? A dark, powerful vibration that encompassed her. She passed away as on a dark wind, far, far away, into the pristine darkness of paradise, into the original immortality. She entered the dark fields of immortality. When she rose, she felt strangely free, strong. She was not ashamed. Why should she be? He was walking beside her, the man who had been with her. She had taken him. They had been together. Whither they had gone, she did not know. But it was as if she had received another nature. She belonged to the eternal, changeless place into which they had left together. Her soul was sure and indifferent of the opinion of the world of artificial light. As they went up the steps of the footbridge over the railway and met the train passengers, she felt herself belonging to another world. She walked past them immune, a whole darkness dividing her from them. When she went into the lighted dining room at home, she was impervious to the lights and the eyes of her parents. Her everyday self was just the same. She merely had another, stronger self that knew the darkness. This curious separate strength that existed in darkness and pride of night never forsook her. She had never been more herself. It could not occur to her that anybody, not even the young man of the world, Skrebinski, should have anything at all to do with her permanent self. As for her temporal, social self, she let it look after itself. Her whole soul was implicated with Skrebinski. Not the young man of the world, but the undifferentiated man he was. She was perfectly sure of herself, perfectly strong, stronger than all the world. The world was not strong. She was strong. The world existed only in a secondary sense. 
She existed supremely. She continued at college, in her ordinary routine, merely as a cover to her dark, powerful underlife. The fact of herself, and with her Skrebinski, was so powerful that she took rest in the other. She went to college in the morning and attended her classes, flowering and remote. She had lunch with him in his hotel. Every evening she spent with him, either in town, at his rooms, or in the country. She made the excuse at home of evening study for her degree, but she paid not the slightest attention to her study. They were both absolute and happy and calm. The fact of their own consummate being made everything else so entirely subordinate that they were free. The only thing they wanted, as the days went by, was more time to themselves. They wanted the time to be absolutely their own. End of section 48